with us tonight, and Steve works with the Walnut Street Congregation in Dixon. Uh, a lot of you know Steve uh, from Nashville and different areas. Uh, the, of course, the Walnut Street Congregation is where Buzzy's children worship there in Dixon, and they're with us on a pretty regular basis. And uh, so we're excited to have Steve with us tonight to speak to us about the topic of the challenge of raising godly children. Thank you, Wesley, and thank you for the invitation to be with you. Um, we have, I'll, I'll just tell you right up front, we have tried really hard to get Buzzy and Charlotte to move to Dixon. We're going to keep trying, and you all can thank me once they finally do. But uh, it's an honor to be with you. I'm grateful for the invitation. Uh, thank you to your elders for the opportunity to be a part of your series. And I know that uh, you're thrilled to have Wes working with you, and I know he's doing a great job. And looks like you're having a, a great vacation Bible school. And let me just thank, uh, join him in thanking all of you who've been working so hard to make that a great success. It's uh, VBS week is always a, a, a hard week, but it's always a great week for the children of the community as well as those of us who are adults. But as a part of your summer series tonight, uh, we're talking about the challenge of raising faithful, godly children. Uh, it, it is a challenge. Uh, there are a lot of families who feel very successful when they look at their children. There are a lot of families who feel like they perhaps have not been as successful. All right. I thought I was on this one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But we can use both if we need to. All right, thank you. A lot of families feel very successful. A lot of families look back over their lifetime and think, you know, oh, boy, I wish I'd have done this differently. I wish I would have done that differently. Um, but I want to begin by, with, with this one very simple point. I really believe that in order for us to be successful in raising our children the way God would want us to, it has to be intentional. It's not going to happen accidentally. Uh, there, there is this method of evangelism known as good life evangelism, which is a very effective method. And, but it simply says that people will be drawn to Christ as they observe your life. And we certainly would hope that that would be true with every one of us. But you know, even in using the good life method of evangelism, there comes a point when we, where we have to say something, where we have to actually do some teaching. We can draw people to the Lord by our lives, but sooner or later, someone's going to have to teach them the gospel. It has to be intentional. That is also true when it comes with raising godly children. We have to determine ahead of time what our goal is. And if our goal is one day to spend eternity in heaven with our children, then our job is set for us, the course is set, and we need to be sure we're walking down that path. I came across a story a while back. Some of you may be familiar with it. It was in a book written by Lewis Timberlake. The book was entitled, It's Always Too Soon to Quit. There's a wonderful story on this idea of being intentional. It was a hot summer day in 1984. The residents of that small New Mexico town lined the roadside and they were so anxious. They were anxiously awaiting the arrival of a lone figure on the horizon. A strong runner beating a steady rhythm proudly held the flaming torch high above his head with his right hand. His leg of the run was almost over. He would hand the torch off to the next bearer who anxiously awaited his arrival. Nine-year-old Amy stood in the crowd and eagerly watched. Severely crippled and bent nearly double, Amy had dreamed of carrying that Olympic 
torch on one leg of its journey from Athens, Greece to Los Angeles, California. And when Amy finally took that heavy torch from the runner, she had to hold it with both hands. She didn't have the agility of her predecessor, but she bravely took one halting step after the other. And as the crowd gave her words of encouragement, she raised her head, revealing a beautiful face with twinkling eyes and a broad smile. Now, everyone knew she wouldn't be able to carry the torch the full kilometer as those who'd gone before her. But the determination in her eyes told them that she would give it her very best effort. Amy just possessed deep within her a burning desire to do this one thing in life. She wanted it, it seemed, more than anything else in the world. So Amy and her mother had raised the necessary fee of $3,000 by holding bake sales and garage sales in their front yard. She had trained for a full year with a 10-pound hammer so that her fragile arms could support the torch for that full kilometer. During that full year of training, not one single time was she able to complete the distance, but she never gave up. Well, that day the crowd grew to 15 and 20 deep on both sides of the road. They held balloons, they held flags, they held banners that read, Run, Amy, run. They cheered and shouted words of encouragement. The local high school band played patriotic songs. And, and all the while, Amy was settling into a steady rhythm. Much slower than that of a seasoned runner, but a rhythm just the same. And everyone present that day just sort of seemed to begin to feel something special. They, they could sense this wasn't just an ordinary day. This certainly wasn't just an ordinary girl. Amy's determination and desire moved hearts. Cameramen actually put down their cameras to reach in their pockets and grab their handkerchiefs to wipe away the tears. There were a number of in inspiring stories that came out of the 1984 Olympics. But the greatest story didn't occur in Los Angeles, California. It took place on the streets of that small New Mexico town because Amy did complete the kilometer that day. For the first time since she had started training a full year earlier, she accomplished what no one thought she would ever be able to accomplish. Timberlake ended his story with this sentence. He said, she had a burning desire to succeed. If we want to raise faithful, godly children, we must be intentional about it. We must have a burning desire within us that will simply not allow us to get off that course no matter what. That doesn't mean that everything will always work out like we have planned. James Dobson, in his book, Parenting Isn't for Cowards, told about some friends that he and his wife have. They said that, he said they were a family blessed with three of the most perfect children you will ever find. He said all three, let me just read this paragraph. All three made straight A's in school, kept the rooms perpetually clean, were musically talented, ate with one hand in their laps, were first team athletes, spoke politely and correctly to adults, and even had teeth that didn't need straightening. He said it was almost disgusting to see how well they turned out. And he wrote, predictably, his friends took full credit 
for how well behaved their children were and were very happy to share advice with anyone who wanted to know. But then he wrote, an interesting thing happened. The Lord, who must have a sense of humor, gift-wrapped a little tornado and sent it as a surprise package on the mother's 40th birthday. And that family, he said, has been stumbling backward ever since. Their little caboose, who's now six years old, is as tough as nails and twice as sharp. He loves to fight with his parents and already knows considerably more than they. Just ask him, he'll tell you. The funny thing about his parents is they quit giving childbirth advice shortly after his birth. Their job got much more difficult. We must be intentional, but that doesn't mean it's always going to work out just like we would want. Several years ago, Professor Nick Stenay did a study of successful families. And as he studied these families who... They themselves believed that they were successful and it appeared in every way from the outside that they were successful in raising their children. He observed six main qualities of strong families. He said, number one, they are committed to the family. Number two, they spend time together. Number three, they have good family communication. Number four, they express appreciation to each other. Number five, they have a spiritual commitment And number six, they're able to solve problems in a crisis. So if we're going to be intentional about raising godly children, if we're going to accept the challenge, where does that kind of family strength begin? We've got to go back to the ancient record on the subject of the family, which, as you well know, is the Genesis account. The very first command that God gave to man and woman had to do with family. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, the Bible says God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The very first command he gave had to do with family. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, Scripture begins to pick up on the family as God planned it. In those verses, the record says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. There are four timeless one-word principles that we must not overlook in that passage. There's the word severance. In this translation from which I'm reading, the words are, Leave his father and mother. You sever that relationship. Now we understand it's not a total severance, but it's severed in the sense that we no longer depend completely on them and give ourselves to them. We give ourselves to our spouse. We sever that relationship. Then there's the word permanence. As he talked about cleaving to the spouse. There is the word unity when he said they shall become one flesh. And then there is that word intimacy. They were both naked and unashamed. So God's idea, God's picture of the successful family has the concept of severance and permanence and unity and intimacy. He cared so much for the family that he provided the foundational guidelines to keep it strong. Before civil government, before the church, before the school... He talked about family strength, family happiness. And so it deserves our top priority as well. 
Well, how can that kind of family strength that God originally designed be sustained? Let's again look at the record. Years after that Genesis account, God reminded the Hebrews of the importance of maintaining strong families. The Hebrews were just about to enter the land of Canaan. Tens of thousands of family members were gathered on the edge of enemy territory. They're going to have to invade that land and conquer it in order to have their home, the home that God provided for them, the home that he promised. And only then would they be able to settle down and live normal lives. Moses tells them to sustain family solidarity. Deuteronomy chapter 6 beginning in verse 3, uh, verse 1. This is the commandment and these are the statutes and commandments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you that you may observe them in the land which you're crossing over to possess that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it. There's that concept of intentionality. Be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, your uh, God of your fathers, has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so you may be wondering, at this point in history, is God still interested in the family? And the answer is absolutely he is. He wants them to live wisely. He wants them to multiply greatly. And he wants them to enjoy divinely provided prosperity. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, he emphasized the uniqueness of their faith. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he gives four ways for families to survive. In verse 4, he says to hear. In verse 5, to love. In verse 7, to teach. And in verse 13, to fear. We would do well to go throughout that passage and underline those words. Hear, love, teach, and fear. He says, for families to be successful, to raise godly, faithful children, we must hear the truth of God continually. Verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Two primary truths form the foundation of their faith. God is unique, unlike any other, and He is unity. And Moses, God through Moses commanded them to hear that truth on a continuing basis. We must hear the truth. We're told in Romans chapter 10 verse 17 that faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the Word of God. And over and over again in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus told the churches in Asia, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Strong families today need to lean on that same truth. We would do well to talk about it regularly. It would be summarized something like this. The Lord is our God. We acknowledge his presence, His uniqueness, His place in our home, 
His right to rule over us. We seek His will. We endeavor to walk in His way. Children need to know that that is the mantra by which their family operates. That the Lord is God. We acknowledge Him. He has the right to rule over us completely. And families who hear that truth continually will not drift apart. So we need to hear the truth continually. From verses 5 and 6 of Deuteronomy 6, we need to love the Lord fervently. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Notice how many times the word all appears in that text. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. He's emphasizing totality. Parents' love for God is not partial. Our love for God must be complete. It's impossible to transfer to a child a principle that I do not embrace. And thus, if I don't love the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, and strength, how can I possibly convey that to my child? It's impossible to convince my child of the value of honesty if I'm dishonest. It's impossible to convince my child of the value of clean lips if I practice profanity. It's impossible to, for children to grasp the importance of compassion if I, as a parent, run roughshod over those who are hurting. Love for God must be all-encompassing. And of course, later, Jesus was asked the question about the greatest commandment, and he said, here it is. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Matthew 22, verses 35 to 40. If we want to be successful in raising godly children, we must hear the truth of God continually. We must love the Lord fervently. And number three, we must teach our children diligently. Verses 7 through 9 of our text say, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. That wasn't the first time those Hebrews had heard that instruction. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and to your grandchildren. The task of indoctrinating children was then and is today the responsibility of the home. It's not the responsibility of an institution or professionals. And that teaching, according to Moses, was to be deliberate. Telling them of God's love for them over and over and over again. And God's desire is for there to be a conscious, consistent transfer of His truth from the older to the younger in the family. We must never stop teaching. That's God's plan. To hear the truth of God ourselves continually 
and allow our children to hear the truth of God's love for them continually. To love the Lord our God fervently with every fiber of our being. To teach our children diligently every day, day in and day out, God's will. And then number four, to fear the Lord greatly. Beginning in verse 10. So shall, uh, so shall it be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him and take and shall take oaths in His name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. We need to remember that God is looking out for His own. He has our good at His heart. And after giving many things, after being given so many things, he warns us about forgetting him. We're so blessed materially in so many other ways that we can get so involved in those things that we forget the God who gave them to us. It's easy when we are blessed as we are. And when family members maintain a sincere fear of God, something wonderful occurs. That self-made pride and presumption disappears as the fear of God increases. And I really think that's why I said in verse 14, You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. Strong families remain strong because they remember the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and are safe. Proverbs 18 verse 10. So if we really want to be successful, if we want to accept the challenge, meet the challenge of raising God's godly children, we must first, after having given our lives to the Lord ourselves, be intentional about the process. It must be front and center in the hearts and lives of parents. And I think today's culture, maybe even more so than in the past, in the hearts and minds of grandparents as well. Because grandparents are so vitally important to the well-being of grandchildren in today's culture. And in that intentional process... We must be sure our children hear the truth of God's love for them continually. That they see our love for the Lord fervently expressed in every area of our lives. That they hear from our mouths, not only our lives, but from our mouths, the word of the Lord as we teach them of God's love for them diligently. And they need to observe in our lives and thus develop in their own lives a healthy, biblical, fearful respect for the Lord. And I really believe the Bible bears out that when we would do that, we will meet with levels of success. Peter Lontos, in a book entitled, Don't Tell Me It's Possible Until After I've Already Done It, 
share this story. It's a story about a military family who transferred to a base where housing was at a premium. Upon their arrival, they checked into a motel where they looked for uh, everywhere in the immediate area for a place to live, but with no success. They were looking for a house, an apartment, anything. There just wasn't any available. The situation began to seem hopeless, but there was never a suggestion that the wife and the children should return to the home that they'd moved from halfway across the United States. They were a family, and they were going to stay together as a family, whatever the housing situation. And so finally, after a few weeks of fruitless searching for housing, the mother proposed a solution. She said, I spoke with the hotel manager today. He told me that he has one large unit that has a kitchen. He's willing to rent it to us. It's small, but we'll make it work. I arranged with him to do some of the daily cleaning chores around the motel in exchange for a lower weekly rate on the room. And so she said, this motel will be our new home. Well, as you can imagine, there was considerable discussion about the inconveniences that were certainly to arise in such cramped quarters. But everyone was in agreement with the mother's plan. If that was what was necessary to keep the family together, everyone would pitch in and do his or her best to make it work. Almost. Soon, school started. The children, adapting to a new surrounding as only kids can, made new friends and occasionally brought them to the motel to visit in the afternoons. One young visitor, the daughter of an officer on the base, was visibly concerned that her new friend was having to live in a motel rather than a more comfortable and spacious house. And as they sat on the steps leading to the motel room, the young friend said, I am so sorry that you don't have a home. And the daughter smiled, shrugged her shoulders, and said, It's okay. We have a home. We just don't have a house to put it in right now. She had some parents who were intentional. We can meet the challenge of raising godly children. If we will depend upon God and His Word, and if He is real in our lives. Got to stop. Thank you for the marvelous way in which you've listened. It begins with your mind, not just your actions. It actually begins in the mind. And he said, so in order for you to be able to do things that are true and noble and just and pure and lovely and of good report and virtuous and praiseworthy, in order to do those things, you first of all need to meditate on those things, think about those things. So even to those who are Christians, he said, if you want real victory in Christian living, it begins with the mind. That also is true as it relates to becoming a child of God. There are certain things that we need to think about and meditate upon. And I know from time to time, whether it's Wes preaching to you or someone else, you're encouraged to think about your relationship with the Lord. And I want to do that again tonight. I want to ask you for just a moment to meditate to think about your relationship to God. If it is not as God wants it to be, 
Let's just make it as simple as we can. If you don't have the relationship with God that He wants with you, as you think about whatever level of relationship you have, if it's not the kind of relationship God wants with you, then don't leave this building tonight without doing what you need to do to establish that kind of relationship. Most of you, I suspect, are already Christians. It may be that what you need to do in order to have the kind of relationship God wants with you is to meditate more on that relationship as Paul is talking about here. And then begin doing better at the things that you know you need to do. It may be that you need to come back to the church. You've wandered away from the Lord's church and what you need to do having thought about that is to take action upon it tonight and come back to the Lord's church. Repent of the sins that have separated you in your relationship with God and His people. What a privilege it would be tonight to pray with you as you rededicate your life to Christ. It may be that you have been thinking about becoming a Christian. You've heard the teachings you perhaps have studied the word yourself. And you know that God's plan is, as Peter established on the day of Pentecost, that in order to be saved, one must repent of his sins and be baptized for the remission of those sins. And you've just never done that. If that's descriptive of you, don't just keep on thinking about it. Act upon it right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.